Welcome, 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 and bon appetit to all. I'm so glad that you have decided to join me on another global exploration in the kitchen. We're going to be looking specifically at a pan recipe by the Guyanese word chef, John Agard. So if you could all take your places at your cooking stations, we're going to get started. All right, now what I'm going to do is just talk you through pan recipe and we're really going to be immersing ourselves in the flavors. So here we go. First, rape a people, simmer for centuries. Bring memories to boil, foil voice of drum. Add pinch of pain to reign of rage. Stifle drum again, then mix strains of blood. Over slow fire, watch fever grow till energy burst with rhythm thirst. Cut bamboo and cure whip well like hell. Stir sound from dustbin, pound handful biscuit tin covered down in shantytown and leave mixture alone. When ready, we'll explode. Mmm, delicious. This is Dub Cooking School. Let's get into it. Order up! I'm the Rhythm Writer, and this is For Posterity. Welcome, 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 welcome. It is so good to be here. This is season 10, episode 1 of For Posterity, Posterity. and I'm your host, The Rhythm Writer. Now, if you're new to the podcast, then I welcome you. If you are returning to the podcast, I say welcome back. I am a decolonial doctor of dub, and I'm so happy to have as my guest for this first episode of the season, Neil Fraser, a.k.a. The Mad Professor. Listening to this dialogue with Mad Professor, you'll learn about his upbringing, Guyanese culture, the Caribbean, transatlantic slavery, music, his love for electronics, his move to London, his encounters with racism and skinheads, and you'll hear about the ways that in 1960s London, All Black people, no matter where they were from, were seen by whites as rowdy, rebellious Jamaicans. Yes. And as we talk about building the Ariwa studio as a producer and as an engineer, Mad Professor helps us to understand that what we do can very much be an extension of who we are. You see, how Mad Professor makes music is a reflection of how he sees the world. And it's through dub. Which is to say that he sees people and places as deeply connected, deeply mixed. And he sees that who we are now carries reverberations of our ancestral roots. Now, a lot of what I'm saying here is a part of my larger project that I'm doing, that I'm working on, a book about dub. And yes, it's coming to you. It's coming. And indeed, I'll probably share some more words via my blog. So look for that in the coming days at 
isissamajhall.com, where I write Pandiridim. But for this episode, oh goodness, this is in my pocket as a dub scholar and enthusiast. Many of these words that we share are words that come from my heart and come from mad professors. I mentioned a book, I mentioned my book, but let me make sure to mention his book because Neil Fraser, AKA the mad professor is completing his memoir and it's titled Method to the Madness and it will be available for you to purchase in January of 2024. So that's enough. That's enough preamble. We're going to jump right into this interesting conversation that will help you to understand Dub and really help you to understand who Mad Professor is and certainly whet your appetite for the book that's coming. All right, I want to shout out one more time, John Agard, the Guyanese poet. And also I want to big up Jashaka. May he rest in power. This episode is dedicated to him. All right, so thank you so much for joining me for Posterity, Mad Professor. It's such a great occasion to be talking with you. Um, I would love it if we could kind of have a good conversation about dub. As you know, I'm here in Jamaica, and dub in Jamaica isn't what it used to be. It isn't what it used to be. Yeah, I know. Dub, dub had a very short, even though it was created in Jamaica, it had a very short lifespan in Jamaica because um, it developed around the early 70s with people like King Tubbies and, uh, and a guy people don't talk about much. His name is Errol Thompson. But they should talk about him because he's really one of the geniuses uh, as an engineer. And um, Errol first used to work out of Randy's studio, uh, Studio 16. Then he went on to work out of Joe Gibbs' studio. You know, and he he was such a genius that he he made a lot of hits, you know. And he was also a guy who, because he understood about signal path he i mean be like lee perry would um engage him when 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 he was setting up his own studio you know when lee was setting up his studio so um yeah but these guys they were experimenting with uh the b-side situation with the version situation because what we had first is uh, anytime a producer would go in the studio, he would make two recordings. One is the A side, and then he'd do a throwaway record, just any any old thing for the B side, right? And um, this was a pattern set from from the USA, which had a very active recording industry. Then around the end of the 60s, records started to come out with like the A side and the B side would be like an instrumental version of the A side, which they would call the part two. Like if you look on old James Brown seven inches, you'll see like um, 
hot pants part one and hot pants part two. You know? Right. Sex, sex machine, all those tunes had part one and part two. And that was when I, you know, I was like a turning teenager and I was quite excited and I said, oh, part two, let me, let me play thinking it's going to be like an extension of the part one, only to find it's just a instrumental version. Right. Now, they copied that in Jamaica, and instead of calling it the part two in Jamaica, they called it version. So in the late 60s and early 70s, many records had like versions for like a four-year period. And then um, someone took it one step further. I'm not sure if it came from Lee Perry or Handicap or Errol Thompson or King Tubbies, who, who started the studio. But they started to play with uh, various outboard effects on the, on the version, like add echoes and add reverbs. And this was very excited exciting to us as um, school school kids listening, you know, because suddenly you'd hear like the rhythm going on and suddenly it would be in a sea of reverb and some echoes. And first we were calling this bass and drum. Right. It's about bass and drum. Mm. Then suddenly along the way, it developed the name dub. So the bass and drum is to emphasize, it was a name that was used to emphasize the parts that were being heard more, yes? That's it. You got it. You got it in one. And uh, because when everything dropped out, the only thing that left most of the time was the bass and drum. But then as it went into more of a trippy thing, it became dub. And certain people started to do albums full of dubs. And this became very popular around, say, 1973, 74. It was so popular that, um, like, we'd go to the shops and to the record shops, and you just want to buy dub, dub albums because dub kind of gave you the landscape to meditate. It was good music for driving to, you know, and you didn't have like voices coming in and interrupting you, you know. So it was great for like meditation. And um yeah, that that was how dub started. Here in the UK, dub was so popular that you'd go to shop and before you buy the air site, you'd say to the shop, could I hear the dub? Mm -hmm. And if the dub is any good, you'd buy the record simply because it had a great dub on the B-side. Yeah, the B-side mattered more than the A-side. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, you know, it became a B-side culture. Right. Well, let me tell you, let me, let me just jump in here before you get into the UK scene, because I, I want to kind of flesh out a couple of things. So the first one is, what do you think or how do you think the term dub came to be the term, right? Because you're saying it was bass and drum 
And then as it got trippier, right, as this the sound got more psychedelic, that's when the word dub started to be used. Yes. Well, so in a technical way, dub normally means overdub, to, to overdub, right? I mean, I don't know if you had any training in engineering or broadcasting. Not but, yet. I should, uh, though. Yeah, yeah, because you're 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 acting apart quite naturally, you know. <laughs> and um, well, dub is something that normally before dub came in, dub to dub or to overdub means like you'd have a track and you're gonna record, re-record stuff on that track. And I could see why it became uh, the, the the name of this genre because what the engineer was doing, he was overdubbing things like flushing toilets. He would overdub like extra reverbs and phases and filters. And the listener would be taken on a trip, you know? Yeah. And, so and a lot of that trip was caused by the act of overdubbing. Hence, hence it became dub. So would you say that overdubbing is a kind of engineering layering process? Yes, that's it. That's it. You got it. <laughs> All right. And so it takes you on a trip. That's why it's trippy music. So absolutely. Yeah. I mean, anyone that listens to dub feels all of those sensations. The other question I think I had for you, because you jumped right into the the start of dub without mm. without acknowledging the start of you. So you're a Guyanese-born yeah. dub engineer, right? So how did you come to be in love with dub? Which is not to say that a Guyanese person can't love dub, but <laughs> how, how is it dub, that, that you came to it? <laughs> dub is loved by anyone. I mean, I just come back from New Zealand. Yeah. And you wouldn't believe the people who really into dub. And so after like independence in Jamaica, uh, I remember like being a little boy and hearing like apparently Jamaica's back. Jamaica's back. Uh, 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 uh. Byron Lee's 1964 hit Jamaica Ska came out just two years after Jamaica's independence in August of 1962. You know, and it was yeah. a popular tunes, and then people like Delroy Wilson were the first things that came about. And, um, you know, before, uh, before reggae, uh, it was rock steady. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, straight after Ska. And that was popular. And, you know, you had certain people, you know, you used to see the records coming out and on the sleeve was record specialist, which I guess was an exporter from Kingston who mm -hmm. specialized in exporting the records to the Eastern Caribbean, to places like Barbados, Trinidad, and Guyana. So we would hear these records and, you know, people dance the same way. And on Saturdays, you get the guys with the song systems would put out the big boxes and, you know, they'd play it loud so the whole neighborhood could hear it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, like I said, it's quite, it's quite similar. 
I mean, mm. I remember since going to like uh, Kingston and then going to Port of Spain. And when you look at the skyline, you know, you, you know, and pictures later, you'd be uh, pushed to think, oh, which country is this, you know? Mm. Because it's got a very, very similar skyline, you know? Guyana, Guyana was always a bit different because we didn't have the hills in the background like Kingston and um, right. Old Spain. It was more a flat. Georgetown is a flat thing and it's on the coast mm. and um, it it's like built on a grid system where roads are parallel to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah, that's 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 diverting a little. No, no, it's all it all matters. I think the environment definitely influences us. No. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. But what I was trying to say is that culturally, we're the same. I mean, um, I mean, like if if I as a guy is looking to find someone of a similar culture then I would look at like a Trinidadian, a Barbadian, or a Jamaican because we're we're also I'm coming from Africa. We all we all inherited words like ras, fufu, mm. dumpling, you know, mm. guinea. You know, we've got certain things that we've brought subconsciously. Through the through the journey across the Atlantic, right? Yeah, and and every now and again it shows up. You know, you can see culturally, uh, like the two countries weren't really as far apart as the distance. Mm. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. There's this connection through culture, and it's far bridges that distance, right? That yeah. way of thinking about Guyana as being so far from Jamaica and really we're all so close together, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. and and how it is that we've been disoriented to believe that we're less connected. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yet, yet just by even looking at the words and the vocabulary, you can see, I mean, we used to cuspew about them ras, not as right. much as Jamaicans would use <laughs> ras. <laughs> but we use it. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. <laughs> your ass, man. <laughs> but, but the music, right? It's not just the sound of the voices and the language that's used, but the rhythms, right? The rhythms are yeah. shared across across this, you know, this Caribbean that we we inhabit. Yes, because um, you know we, you know, we're a strange bunch because we were told not to speak the languages, but yet we had certain drum beats and certain things that came over on the voyage. Right. And some people on that voyage would have been let off, say, in Kingston. Some people could have let off in uh, Brazil or or, uh, Guyana. I mean, they had certain key slave ports, you know. Mm -hmm. Don't forget we were we were handled as if we were um cargo yeah yeah bananas or something like that you mm-hmm, know? Mm-hmm. 
and some from this bunch might have ended up in Port of Spain, and some from that bunch can end up in Jamaica. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a major thing. It took a lot of traumatized people, you know, with us because your brothers and sisters could have ended up some somewhere else from you. Mm. It's interesting uh, to hear you speaking about um, slavery in this way, and and I'm seeing your face because we're on Zoom, and it's as if you're remembering it personally. You know, you're yes. saying brothers and sisters as 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 though they are your direct brothers and sisters. You know, Absolutely. and and so can you maybe talk about how time is, how you see time, maybe? Well, you know, certain things come through your subconscious. I think certain things, you know, you just felt it in your DNA. Mm. I used to, I mean, my grandmother, who was my mother's mother, she was like half Amerindian. Mm. You know what we call Amerindian? Yes. Buck, right? And uh, we would ask her, I mean, because because she was half Amerindian, I mean, she had half of African uh, history and half of a uh, uh, indigenous, local, right? Yeah, indigenous history. And uh, you would ask her about Africans, and she, like, she was taught not to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Say, well, I don't ask her about that. Don't ask her about that. You know? mm. He didn't want to, to discuss it. Like, it meant, like it was painful for her as well. Mm. So, um, <clears throat> I remember when I was small, even there were some some people around the countryside of Guyana, when you see them, some women dressed, they're very similar to how I found the women in North, Northern Brazil would dress. Mm-hmm. With the long white dresses in say Bahia. Okay. And and you know, it's only afterwards as I travel I realized, okay, so this is all quite similar. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of things that came by. What I've learned through my um musical uh quests is that the combination of um, like African slaves and like Spanish would give you a similar but different rhythm from say the combination with African slaves and the English, Mm. you know, because we developed like the mento and the calypso and stuff like that. While people in Spain, they had like the um, the rumba and the, and and in Brazil the samba. Samba, right? Yeah, and in Argentina the tango. Mm-hmm. Even though some people trying to make out that 
that has nothing to do with Africans. <laughs> mm-hmm. But Argentina is another trip. Out. Right, right. That's 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 another conversation. Ooh, yes, <laughs> that's a long conversation. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you leave yeah. Guyana um, as a, a young teen, teen and yeah. and then you you make your way to to the UK with your family. Um, my father. Well, my father was okay. there already. Okay, so can yes. go to school. Mm-hmm. And I meet um there's a guy up the road from me, Freddie. Mm-hmm. And he's he's from Jamaica, his parents from Jamaica. Mm-hmm. And I, actually there's a nice chapter in my book about Freddie. I can't he wait did. for this book. I can't wait for Freddie, this book. <laughs> Freddie was there. Um my dad was keen on me hooking up with Freddie, who mm-hmm. was living in my street. And he would tell me, Yeah, um, He's from Jamaica and he tell me certain words, you know, about bumble this and that, you know. <laughs> and <laughs> you know, and um I already had interest in music. Mm-hmm. And Freddie would tell me, Yeah, every Tuesday night there's this song system party going on. Come down and check it out. And I would go and I would Hear things like toots and the metals, melodians, and all this. And yeah, because I remember when I was going to England, I was thinking at first, oh no, I'm not going to get any reggae mm. because, um, you know, we had so much, so, so much reggae in Guyana. Right. And, you know, I was pleasantly surprised to find that in England, I had even more reggae than in than in Guyana, you know. Mm-hmm. So um yeah, we mix you know, mixed with some some Jamaicans like Freddie and mixed with some Bajans and uh I had a couple other guys from like uh Saint Lucia. Mm-hmm. Uh they didn't have any Trinidadians. But um and then there were a couple African guys as well. Okay, we're like, in Africa. Ghana, there's there's a guy, Eric Eric Adolfo, he was from Ghana, and there's another guy from Tanzania. We all mixed mm-hmm. together. And the interesting thing about going to school in England is that as you because there were the blacks and then there was the whites. Mm-hmm. There weren't much Indians at that point. Mm-hmm. And you had like the skinheads coming up and the yeah. skinheads were like anti-black to some extent, you know. Mm-hmm. At first they were. Right. And they they were they were beating up, you know, you know, they were beating up some some black guys. So the only thing you learn to do, the main the main defense you learned and the main thing they feared was the Jamaican aura. So, you know, you have to start cussing, cussing like a Jamaican. Hmm. Yes, that was your defense. You tell them what the Blood clot and the rats clot and this and that, and they back off. What? And then yeah, and then 
the general impression was that, oh, those Jamaicans are back. And we are all Jamaicans to them. Right, right. But, you know, there was no time for saying, oh, this one is nicer because he's Pajan. This one is not. No, we're all from the black year Jamaican. Mm-hmm. Don't get the Jamaicans mad because they're going to be cussing and they're going to be fighting. So wow. after a while, they don't trouble you. So black, especially if you learn to cuss. You give them two bad words and they back off. They back off. So whether yeah. you're from Trinidad, whether you're from Tanzania, you're Jamaican. Yeah. And that's why even a lot of that generation end up speaking with Jamaican accents. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there are, a lot, there are a lot of people who grew up in London that mm-hmm. came from other islands who ended up speaking with Jamaican accents. Right, right. Huh. So then let's make our way to the studio, right? So right. how do you... <laughs> How do you then start to to you know develop your sound? You know what is it that gets you there? Well, you know I um from I was a kid in Guyana. I learned. I taught myself electronics. Mm-hmm. Taught how to build radios, amplifiers. You know, yeah. I never studied it form formally, and yeah, I went to. The library and got some books and circuit diagrams, etc. So, uh, when I reached London, now I discovered that my father, even though he was a chemist and druggist, uh, he used to work for the local hospital, Charing Cross Hospital in the city. He was also into electronics, and he had this uh, room at home full of books of all kinds of things, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, like how you got a bookshelf there, those books of how to build this and build that. So I rapidly had an understanding of what you call in, uh, in, in, in studio terms, the signal path. And what that is, is like, uh, the signal comes in at a certain point, and then you follow the circuit diagram, and then it could go here to a certain kind of amplifier, then it could be inverted, then it could go into auxiliaries, then it could go into the routing. So you understand a signal path. And I had a very, because of my electronic background, when I started to make music, I had a very good understanding of the signal path and how to manipulate the signal. So there was always a sound in my head Mm. that I'm trying to get to, you know. Mm -hmm. And what I discover, I knew what I wanted in my head. Mm -hmm. And that's the unique thing about producers and uh, engineers, because certain producers know exactly where they want to get to. Yeah. You know, in their brain. Mm -hmm. And they learn to manipulate different processes to help them get to that point. 
Is it stressful? Is it stressful sometimes <laughs> when you have a sound, you know, and you know it's supposed to go up and it's supposed to sound kind of shrieky and it's supposed to do this and and you can't Instead find it sounds the opposite. Yeah. 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 And everything you think should work to get that sound doesn't, doesn't work. work. Do you give you up or do you keep to... pushing? Well, you know, what I find sometimes you when it's enough, it's enough and you and you leave it and you go away. And next time you come, you just get to the point and get to the problem mm. straight away, immediately. It's funny how it works. So I guess in that same vein, when is a, when is a dub complete for you when you're creating a dub? Or do you ever think of them as finished, finished? Or is it just, okay, I'm done with that one for now. I might take it up again a year from now and it'll be another dub. I don't know about a year. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> a year is a long time. Yeah. No, for me, a dub is complete when it gives me a certain excitement mm. that I know I can't reach again if I do it again. Ah. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, do, you, do you feel it in your body then? Is it feel it? You, you feel it, and then you know it's good. Yeah. You feel a certain excitement. Mm -hmm. I mean, like um, last night I was at this show and I played a dub. And I remember the night I made this dub. It was like about three o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. and It's a dub called Beyond the Realms of Dub, right? Mm -hmm. And that was in 1982. And I made this dub. And it's by chance, but it had this classical voice, classical recording on it. And it was like almost from a horror movie. And, uh, and then it came in with bass. You know, heavy. You know, um, I did a couple of mixes, and I thought, this is it. I don't think I could do anything, mm. you know, reaching that kind of um, climax. Mm. So, and I went with it, and I sent it to this guy that was an original, John Peel. You probably heard of John Peel and BBC. Yeah. And he was he was highly interested in dub, and he was going crazy. And he he wanted a session on Rage One because he was on Rage. He wanted a dub session on Rage One, and normally they call you in the studio to do the session. Call you in the BBC studio, mm -hmm. and he he recognized the fact that I he, he, you know maybe I told him that you know look. It's not easy to just go in the studio and recreate this, you know. Yeah. So he's like, okay, I'm going to go with this. And um, they took, you know, that was one of the first times they did the Rage One session 
based on what I'd done in my own studio as huh. opposed to, to the BBC Region One studio. So everyone's gonna have to take a listen to that one. Beyond the Realms of Dub, and it's on ours. It's subtitled W. W Crazy Part Two. 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 And uh, the catalog number is A R I L P Double O Three. So it's the third you just, album. You, you just know that one by heart. So yes, Ariwa catalog. Yeah. Why don't we go there? You know, that yeah. was fantastic to think about, you know, a, a dub that really sticks in your head. Um, and I think I guess it's because of the kind of vibration it gave you to to create. Yeah. Yeah, and because and because I played it last night at um at both of the shows I done last night. I had two shows last night. Mm -hmm. And I played it also as part of my tribute to Jashaka. Mm. Right. Because um Shaka also he he sung some lyrics on that Beyond the Realms of Dub. Mm -hmm. And his lyrics was called Lion Youth. Yeah. Lion Youth. Yeah. yeah. And it's a very, very important dub in our relationship. I mean, it was just a very strong record. Yeah. Yeah. So why don't we why don't we talk about this, right? Because just a few days ago now, right? Um, Jashaka passed. And when I say passed, I mean passed to the other realm. Um, I don't yeah. know if I can use any other word, but but passed in this case, um, because I feel as if he's still here, the music is still here, and mm. the impact that he's had on on the, let's say, the dub community worldwide is mm. is really significant and and is worth a significant, not even mention, but a discussion and a meditation. So mm. As someone who's worked, worked isn't enough. As someone who has been a part of Jashaka's life for a significant portion of your own life, can you talk about, you know, Ariwa, the studio, the label, um, that space, and and Jashaka's importance in that right. kind of space? Yeah. <clears throat> well, you know, w w when I started the studio. Um, Remember, I started as a guy with no experience, no connection. I mean, Bob Marley was my cousin, or you know, <laughs> I had no, no form of connection. I was just a guy who loved electronics and decided one day I'm gonna build a studio. I said to my then girlfriend, mm -hmm. you know, before we got married, I said, "Listen." I'm going to start a studio. I mean, we bought this house in South London. Right? Mm -hmm. I want to build a studio. And everybody I told them, you know, I didn't know that many people, but the few people I knew and I told, they said, the immediate thing was, but you can't sing. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, there was dumb. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, I, you know, that's it. That's exactly it. You know, I decided, I mean, that was my secret weapon. Yeah. So I 
built the studio and I started to make records. Remember, you know, it's not say like you're a dentist or you're a doctor and you know you have to study mm. for 20 years and then, or, or, or for five years and then you learn how to give injections. Right. I started to mix without anybody teaching me to mix. So it's crazy. Mm. Anyhow, I, the first records I made, it was clear that I that I didn't know what I was doing, <laughs> technically. <laughs> or I had an idea, but I had no experience. And then um, I got sucked from my regular job, mm-hmm. my, you know, because I think I think I let it became let it became known that I wasn't really interested in like ministry defense sub assemblies, which is what the job was all about. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do something more adventurous, and I and, and I had another job where I was building um like mixing mixing this channel, yeah. which helped me out. But anyhow, when I made my first set of records and had the studio, Shaka called up out of the blue. And then he said, um, he's interested in doing some recordings. Hmm. And he came down to my front room. I was at home. And he said, yeah. Yeah, he wanted to do some recording. And he came in and he did some recordings. So we developed like a relationship um, because he knew a lot of people in the business. He, I think he put out a couple of tunes himself by then. Was, was it the first time that you were meeting him when he came to record with you? Uh, he came... He came before. No, I went to one of his song system sessions in okay. South London. And what so, was that like for you? Because I understand that well, his sound was a special sound. Well, at that time, it was, it was, it didn't got, gather that that mystique and that um kind of aura that it. Mm-hmm that it became later, you know? Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but it was nevertheless one of the significant song systems around, you know? Right. Uh, Lloydie Coxon's song system was more the 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 real pinnacle, you know, of, mm-hmm. of song, you know? Right. But, um, yeah, he, he had known, like, the distributors, you know, People to make labels. He knew. He knew more or less everybody in the business, and he knew artists from Jamaica as well, things like that. And remember, I knew nobody. Mm. So Shaka, he became. And, and the thing is, at that time, record music business, especially reggae business, was quite aggressive. Right. When you go as like a 22-year-old or something, you say, you're going in a business. A lot of people have no patience mm-hmm. or, you know, no tolerance. 
you know. So a man would not hesitate to tell you, piss off mm. the slightest thing, you know. Like I said, very aggressive. But uh, so Shaka, when I started to make my first records, he became my um, my way in. He became the guy who would more or less hold my hand mm. and bring me into the more aggressive reggae business. Mm. And um, because he started to use the studio as well, he had other artists and so coming in to use the studio. Right. They would follow him because at the end of the day, he's what you call uh, an influential character. Mm -hmm. I mean, later, uh, soon after that, I had to move the studio because the activity became too much for my front room. Yeah. The guy next door was complaining. And we found this place in Peckham. This is the Gautry Road? Gautry Wait. Road, yeah. It's a four. Now, Peckham is like a trench down kind of area. Okay. So, you know, it's an area where anything could happen. Mm -mm. And, and, and everything did happen. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. What happened to you? Did anything happen to you? What, what did you no. witness on this road? <laughs> no, but it could have, it could have, because, uh, I mean, oh, you'd have to read the book. Oh, but... here it comes. Another plug for the book, <laughs> January 2024. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, um, Peckham was a rough area. Right. And, yeah, the studio was in the basement. Mm-hmm. Then we had the ground floor, which had a kitchen, and uh, we used to relax there. Then we had the first floor where that became like the shaka, the shaka room, the shaka office, mm. uh, shaka distribution. Okay. Then we had another floor, another floor where my brother-in-law was living. So, um, yeah. Yeah, Shaka was the guy who would distribute the Arriva records to all the shops around town. Mm. And he would like take, I mean, we didn't have so many records, but he would take it around and, you know, come back a week or two later with an envelope and say, yeah, this is from those records and this is from that record. Nice. Yeah, mm. it, it wouldn't have been possible <laughs> without him. No, mm. not not with the climate of the reggae business then. Right. It was a rough climate. Right. And you had to be rough. Mm. It's a bit similar to when I was at school and I met with Freddie when I, when I first came to England. Mm. And Freddie kind of guided me through the ways of the predominantly... Jamaican um, Jamaican culture right, Jamaican right. English culture mm -hmm. yeah. yeah you wouldn't have been able to navigate that without Freddie and you wouldn't have been able no. to navigate the, the music business the without Jashaka absolutely can you talk a little bit about you know him as a person like his temperament etc you know outside of the you know 
outside of the well, music space? He was a very cool, quiet, quiet guy. And he would attract a lot of uh, people despite his quietness. Because normally you think a quiet person wouldn't attract anybody. People just say, oh, he's quiet and past. He seemed to to have had something that would pull in people mm -hmm. into following him or to, you know, I think he's what people call these days an influencer or something, you know. Right. And, um, and he was absolutely a generous kind of person. I mean, he would, like, he'd come to, the, I mean, we would come to the studio, you know, all the time. But he would, like, come and he'd bring, like, a bottle of water, a bottle of drink or something like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, most people would think, oh, well, I'm not going to spend money and give anyone a drink. You know, for him, it's a natural extension to, like, give something, mm. give something to, some, to someone, you know? Right. And it could be a stranger. And it's not to say he's given it because he wants money. Right. He's just giving it. Just giving it. Because he's he was a given kind of person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or I remember he, you know, when we start to furnish culture, go to a second hand shop and buy like um chairs or something like that. And yeah. You know. Because he, he thought we needed chairs. Mm. <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so his spirit was that of uh, giving. Yeah. Giving yeah. kind of person. It's interesting to hear you talk about that. And to think about this, you said, you know, really rough reggae industry and how someone like him, right, with all of he this kind of flower. softness. Yeah. All of this softness was able to kind of meet that fire and cool it down so he can navigate He was a flower amongst the thorns. Mm. That's the best way I could put it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it was, a, it was a rough business, like I said. And it was a business didn't have any tolerance for someone who wasn't in it. You mm. know? And mm. later on, I mean, because obviously, as I met people later, and I realized, you know, the mood. It was a business where, boy, you know, you know, you have to be tough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and yeah. this was echoing the the state of the business from Jamaica, because from Jamaica, you had to be tough to be in the record business. And that mood was imported into into the UK as well. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Jashaka had a, a a vital or consistent role in Ariwa up until yes. into this year, yes? Into now. Well, no, no, no. We had our 
times when we weren't so close. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, because you talked about four to five years. Ago, <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It's a long time. So it, it's a long time. So you know, we had the ups and downs and ins and outs, you know, mm-hmm. stuff. But I, I mean, the the most amazing thing is that I hadn't seen him or talked to him since before the lockdown. Mm. Um, and two weeks ago, no, more than that, about a month ago, I was in Costa Rica because, I mean, I love Costa Rica, so I go to Costa Rica, I hang out there. And I was in Costa Rica and I just finished some um, meditating sessions. And out of the meditation, in the sessions, I thought, ah, oh, I must call Shaka because we've got a few records together. And, you know, and one of them was generating some funds. So I thought, let me call Shaka and fix him up. And I called him and said, listen, let's hook up because I came back from um, Costa Rica around the 15th of March. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I said, yeah, let's let's hook up. And then um, we supposed to hook up, but then I was going to New Zealand around mm. the 20th. Oh. So we only had a five-day window to hook right, up. Right, right. And we didn't. Then he called back and he said, okay, when you come back, we hook up, mm. which was on Friday. Friday just gone. Mm. Obviously, we missed it. Yeah. But it's funny how sometimes your mind work. Mm-hmm. And 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 I had, I know he was quite excited about us hooking up. You know, from what he told a few people, you know, yeah, he was quite excited about us hooking up again because we hadn't hooked up. Mm. Like I said, we hadn't communicated for like a few years. Yeah. When your mind runs on someone, right? Yeah, it's it like a something. different frequency, different kind of communication. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we give thanks for Jashaka for sure. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. So you you've mentioned now a couple of spaces, more than a couple of spaces that you've been in. Um, you know, you say you love to hang out in Costa Rica. Um, you know, you've mentioned New Zealand. Can you talk about, you know, and you mentioned this earlier about dub being loved all over the world. Um, mm. Dub has taken you literally all around the world. All around, even to Jamaica. To the strange place called, called Jamaica. But the question I have for you regarding all this travel is, do you feel that your world travel has influenced your sound at all? Sometimes, because like, it's certainly helped me to understand Caribbean rhythms that we've inherited over over time and inherited beyond the the journey of from like Africa to the Caribbean. Mm. It's only giving me a very good understanding of you know how people move and why people move and different instruments. Because you know, Colombia, there's a music called Cumbia. Yes. And it's got some similar traits to, to reggae. To, 
it has a lot of similar traits. That's something I'm absolutely yeah. curious about. Um, and and also with dub, it has a lot of this kind yes. of drag. I think that's the best way for me yeah. to describe it. Is space. that that drag and space of cum of cumbia is very reminiscent of of dub of dub yeah. reggae. Um, yeah. what do you think is accounting for that? Do you think it's a the shared African root, or is it something <sighs> else? I think when African culture is intermixed with the indigenous and intermixed with the Spanish influences, you know, the that kind of Southern European influences as well, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just a combination of when people get together. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah, the magic happens. <laughs> yeah. That's when the magic happens. <laughs> yeah. Babies happen and magic happen. <laughs> yes. Listen, <laughs> I have something in my hand here. It is your dubbing with Anansi. Okay, uh, right. I, I really love the artwork. Um, but um and it's I mean it's so cool. This robotic spider at the right. desk, at the console, you know, just making awesome things happen. And so, you know, and just kind of to call out some of the the, the track titles on this album, you have Atlantic Crossing is the first, second is Rebels Gathering, uh, third, Sound Tester, four, Maroon Attack, five, Culture Vulture, six, Middle Passage, seven, Tribal Dance, eight, Rasta, Interpreter, nine, Little Lopez, um, and we'll stop there just now. I just want to, I mean, I could keep going, right? But I'm just saying... You know, how do you think about or how do you use dub as a way of of telling stories and preserving history? Well, this is it. I mean, this is like a soundtrack, if you could imagine, of the journey from Africa to the Caribbean. Because we talked about words that came through. I mean, it's interesting that you picked up on this album because, I mean, I forgot about this album. Well, you can no, never forget. Not. Never forget. No. no. But it was at the far corners of my mind, especially when we spoke earlier, because some of the words, of all the words that came true, the, the, the journey, one name seemed to crop up in Jamaica, crop up in Trinidad, crop up in Barbados, crop up in Guyana is Anansi. Anansi, it varies from territory to territory, but it's like this kind of spider. Trickster. Sometimes human. Yeah, a smart man who's always outsmarting people. Mm -hmm. And it's cropped up so much that there must be some truth in it. It can't be just imagination. Mm. And I kind of pick up and, <laughs> I, you know, I heard a story. I can't remember where I've heard it, whether it was in Africa, because it's also in Africa. Yes, right. That's the origin. Yeah. yeah. But one of the things I picked up is that during the slave trade, when the Europeans was running into Africa and um, snatching people. And, you know, there's this guy, he was the king of his village, you know, king of his tribe. They snatched him, his wife, and four children. And there's this 
point this place where they snatch the people and they put them in this storage until the next shipment of ships going to the Caribbean comes, right? Mm -hmm. So they put them in there for like, it could be a week, it could be two weeks. You'd be in this storage. So snatch this king, Anansi, put him in this storage thing, put the chains on the door and everything, lock it tight. Then they came back to get him. When they came back to get him, he wasn't there, right? He looked around, and all that they could see is six spiders mm-hmm. crawling out the door. The guy was not there, Anansi, right. and none of his kids and his wife wasn't there. And that's when the locals then realized Nancy, Anansi, he was a guy with some superpowers. He came out of the storage and he became free. I don't know if it's folklore or what. Right, right. I was thinking it's an interesting myth. It's an interesting story. And I don't know if any of those words are quite right. Right. I, I think it's more apt to say this is how we understood the world. Right. As This is how we understood it. And this is how we continue to understand it. So we don't need necessarily to put a name on it and call it magic, call it, you know, anything else. Phobia. No, it no. It's just the world, right? This is just the one of the worlds, maybe even, right? right. Um, do you think about mixing and getting those sounds from your head and onto a, you know, recording device? Do you think about that as a kind of storytelling that you're doing? Yes. Yeah. Mm. It's a soundtrack. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's the soundtrack. And as I travel, because I go to Africa a lot, I've got a place in Gambia. Right. And I try to um, inter- interact and intermix with the people from there, you know, because there's definitely links that need to be forged and need to develop, you know. Right. How important was it for you to have? a place in a home, right? In Gambia, in Africa. Very important because, you know, in the 70s, we, the teenagers, the black teenagers of the 70s, we were the first to embrace like the whole Garvey teaching, the whole Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, uh, and not be willing um, slaves, so to speak. We were the first of the generation to embrace Africa, to love our black skin and to see beauty. You have to know for years. I mean, and sadly, it's kind of reversed now again. But mm-hmm. for years, we had the kind of European brainwashing that right. black is ugly, white is beautiful. Then you had all these parlors like, if you black, get back. If you brown, stick around. Stick around. And if you white, you're all right. Yeah. And all this thing about you go to the banks like in the Caribbean, black country, and yeah, all the tellers and all the people operating the banks, they're white. And then all the... um, workers doing all the menial jobs, you know, black. So we were the first generation to embrace blackness and embrace Africa and not 
like running from it. I was very curious about Africa as well. And as soon as I had the chance in the 90s, I went to Africa. I went to Gambia. Mm-hmm. That was the first place. Okay. I started to develop things and took my kids there. And I wanted to have a place in Africa, even if it's to help people and to do things, you know, with with Africans. Yeah. Mm. And that's why we ended up with Ariwa in in the Gambia. And Ariwa itself is a Yoruba word, it's yes? A, yeah, yeah. Ariwa is a Yoruba word and it means communication. Yeah, it's from Nigeria. Nigeria right. word. How do you feel about all this Afrofuturism, right? And the kind of turn to Africa that's happened in the last, you know, decade, let's say, um, and certainly been um, spurred by the Marvel universe and, you know, characters like Black Panther. Um, what do you think of how maybe young people are seeing Africa today? Is it reminiscent of what you felt in the 70s or is it a different kind of turn to Africa? From from the little that I've observed, it seems like uh, it's heading back to where we were in the 70s, you know, in embracing Africa and seeing Africa and Black as as a positive imagery. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's important. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's I, th- I think you're right. I mean, it seems that that turn is happening um, and hopefully, you know, not for exploitative reasons. Yes, yes, you know? yes. I mean, the sad thing about this time is that once you have that going on, you have more or less an inverse parallel situation. You have people who are still going down the road of like skin lightening cream. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Things like that. Or people think that to move ahead, they must have like a white manager or, you know, some, something is going to give it them ticket mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. acceptance yeah yeah so you we've mentioned a couple of times during this recording that there is a book coming january yes. 2024 what method, method to the madness to the ma- yeah method to the madness like maybe we can talk just a, a little bit about you know why write this book now you know what is it that hasn't been said that made you say i have to write the book because otherwise you know well, I started it a good um, nine years ago. You know, mm-hmm. it's not started now. It's been in the making. But, you know, for, for me, more than anything else, it's a chronological situation about how I lived and, you know, my life. And more than that, you see, in England, there are a lot of black youngsters who need kind of reassurance that they're, they're entitled to a fair slice of society to succeed and they could be anything they want to be. And there's a lot of youngsters who don't have that in them here. I hate to break it to you. I hate to break it to you, but it's the same here in Jamaica. Really? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's, I mean, whilst it's not totally surprising, because I know the Caribbean in the 70s, I know the mood that existed. I'm a little bit su- surprised that it has also reverted. Right. Mm-hmm. Though we are a, a Black nation, more or less, 
there isn't necessarily a kind of um equality right, right. For all for all black people for all people in oh. in jamaica mm. right due to corruption right. due to the colonial legacy due to all of these reasons and a lot of those reasons are the same reasons that you're observing in England. And it's because they're connected, yeah. right? It's because of what right. the English of what the English did here. They did very well. <laughs> it was so well yeah. that we have not yet undone it. So, right. you know, but dub That's is a, a good point. And I, I think, you know, the more the more people listen to the kinds of music, uh, the lyrical content of That's someone like Josh Shaka opens the hat the head, opens the mind. And you know, you're yeah. talking about dub and and its way of of allowing for a kind of meditation. Yeah. We don't have that. You know, we don't have that in in many other music forms, um, no. you know, so, yeah. Very yeah. interesting. Do you yeah. think about freedom when you think about dub? Yes, because the dub, uh, you could hear a track one time and you think about one thing and then you play back that track and even immediately... After after you just listened to three and a half minutes of it, play it back again, and you'd hear different things that you didn't hear the first time. Yeah. Now, a lot of time with a singing song, you don't go through that. With a singing song, you'd hear what the singer is trying to let you hear, whether it's about your beautiful eyes, you know, and, and it's all about the eyes. And it doesn't really allow you to think about um, anything else but that subject matter. With dub, you get like a blank canvas and it depends on what else going on around you. It kind of gives you that meditation space. Yeah. I mean, it's a beautiful, adventurous music where I, I mean, I really don't think it's been used enough but it's a music that like some tracks and movies need to explore more you know. well give thanks for this conversation mad professor thank you Isis it's, it's been good you know it's for posterity it's for posterity it's for posterity it's for posterity Thank you so much for listening to this episode of For Posterity. I want to give a big shout out to my special guest, Neil Fraser, a.k.a. Mad Professor. And yes, you heard him say here on this episode that there is a book coming. January 2024, look for it. It will be titled Method to the Madness. All right, that's all for now. More episodes loading soon. Thank you for always being there. And trust, much more dub to come. One.